0: is special all scripture is special is that not right Um, every uh, jot and tittle as Jesus said every word every sentence in this book it is majestic why because it is the word of God it is the very breath breathed out breath of the almighty so all scripture is special But that said, um, I am sure you would agree that some portions of God's words, they uh, seem to stand above the rest. Isn't that right? They seem, they only seem, but they seem to stand above the rest. And is that not true for what it is that you and I are faced with this morning? Friends, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus on a mountainside overlooking Caesarea Philippi, it is surely one of the most awe-inspiring, one of the most intriguing events that has ever been recorded by man, is it not? Well, hopefully what we're going to see today is that in addition to the section's majesty, that this portion of scripture is also very pastoral. Do you see what I mean? That yet, of course, uh, the transfiguration is very theological, isn't it? It tells us, it tells you and I a lot of truths about God and about who he is. It's very theological, but in addition to that, this portion of Scripture is actually very practical too. That we learn in these verses many lessons that will help you and I to live and to live out our Christian lives on this sinful earth. So, with these things said, and I'll tell you this with a certain degree of trepidation, I would invite you just now to turn back to what we read, or what did you read earlier on. So, would you please have Scripture open in front of you uh, at Mark chapter nine, it's page one thousand and twelve, and we'll look from verse one to, to verse eight, and and this is the the, the first. Aspect of this glorious portion of scripture that we have to consider. Firstly, we see here an alteration to the Son of God. An alteration to the Son of God. If you were here in the church last Sunday morning, did you leave the sermon thinking I was chancing my arm? Do you think I was just being a bit of a chancer uh, last Sunday morning in the morning service? Maybe if you look at the text, you'll see what I mean. Like in the NIV, have a look at this. Verse one kind of sits. <laughs> uh, verse one of chapter nine sits with what comes before it doesn't it? Do you know what's that in the text? Did you see it there? Like uh, verse one of chapter nine sits almost as the conclusion with everything that comes before. And here's the deal. Uh, When we dealt with what comes before, I didn't touch verse one, did I? I didn't say anything about verse one last week at all. Uh, So maybe you were sort of left a bit suspicious about me last week. So what was that? Was that just me chancing it? Was it? Well, absolutely not. You see, what we've got to appreciate is that there's disagreement about what verse 1 refers to. And if we read it again, maybe we'll see what I'm talking about. Let me read it to you. So Jesus says in verse 1, he says this, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here are not going to taste death before what happens? Before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So do you see why there's disagreement? Like, what does that refer to, the kingdom of God coming with power? Is it, I think naturally we would think this, is it the resurrection of Jesus? Is that what he's talking about, the kingdom of God coming? Is that what he's talking about? Maybe. But I'll tell you this, the reason that I left verse 1 until this week is that I think much more likely is the fact that Jesus there is speaking about the transfiguration itself. Now, do you, do you see the logic? Do you see what I'm saying there? That Jesus saying, some of you here are going to see the kingdom of God come with power, that he's talking about what is just about to unfold on the mountainside, on the hill. Are you convinced? Well, don't the next words of verse 2 confirm what I'm saying here? Look at how verse 2 begins. Look at it. Now, think about this. Mark very, very, very rarely in search and inserts a, a chronological marker a time reference very rarely does he do it but what does he do here he says here's the prophecy about the kingdom of god coming with power and after six days look what happens so do you see it Like, he is tying, in verse 1, this prophecy of power to the transfiguration. So do you see the point that I'm making here? What's verse 1? What does it refer to? It refers to this almighty, this magnificent event that we are considering today. It refers to the transfiguration. Okay, fine. But if I'm saying this is an amazing event, what what makes this so amazing? What happens in the transfiguration? Well, um, as a congregation, before, we have noticed this, that at times, and at crucial, crucial moments in Jesus' earthly ministry, I'll give you a couple of examples. Think in your minds about Gethsemane. Pivotal moment. Think about the raising of Jairus' daughter. Now, have you got that? Crucial moments, what does Jesus do? Doesn't take with him, the 12 disciples. Doesn't take with him, big crowd. What does he do at these sort of pivotal moments, sensitive moments? What does he do? He seeks the company of an inner circle of men. Like he takes with him Peter, James, and John these sort of pivotal moments and you're noticing with me aren't you that's what he does here peter james and john does he take them you see he takes them up a mountainside why well we might say for solitude but luke also makes it clear that he takes them up the mountainside why to pray so it's for prayer so hopefully you're with me I'm encouraged by the fact that everyone's had an extra hour in their bed this morning. So you've got no excuse for not being with me this morning. But you've got the picture here. There's four men. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they have traveled up a mountainside. That's what we're seeing here. But surely, the most pressing detail that we have to address just now is what happens there to our Lord. So this is how we're going to play it. I will read what happens to Jesus? And I would just ask you to consider what it is that you're being told by scripture. So would you do that? Just, I'll read it. You listen. Consider. Think about what happens to Jesus here. We read this. After sixties, Jesus takes these men, leads them up a mountainside where they're all alone. You're ready for this next bit. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. You what? He was transfigured? on earth does that mean like that is and it's certainly not an everyday expression like we're not down the town and i'm doing a shopping and we overhear people say oh did you see jimmy last week oh yes i was transfigured you never hear something like that why not because it's not a common word is it i mean it's not an everyday expression and yet you and i just now have to work out what on earth this means. means So listen to me, please. Get this: the word "to be transfigured" it comes from a root word, the root meaning "to be changed." To be changed. So, do you see it? What we are being told here is that something incredibly unusual happened to Jesus. Do you understand? That at this moment on the mountain he was he was transformed, like he was altered in this radical sort of comprehensive way and i think friends that we get an insight into what that might have looked like to to those disciples by what mark goes on to say now listen to this in verse 3 he says now picture it he says that jesus clothes became dazzling white that for lack of a better expression just now, that Jesus at that moment, he began to shine. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it incredible that Jesus at that moment began to radiate light, brilliant light, that he began to glow in the presence of these three men. Now, I, I, I genuinely hope that you're sitting there and you're with me when I say to you, this is a marvelous event, and I hope you're seeing why I can see that. Surely this is true, that it is one thing uh, for, for you and I to uh, establish the outward effects of the transfiguration. We can we can straightforwardly say what's happening. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing altogether to establish why. You know, to establish what exactly was behind this light, and to establish what on earth was going on here. And yet we have to do that. So why why did the transfiguration take place? And what exactly was causing this light? Well, friends, the, I, I think that the, the key thing for you and I to appreciate just now, if we're going to understand this, listen to me. It is the otherworldly language that mark uses you see what i mean otherworldly language listen to verse three he says jesus clothes became dazzling white now listen to the next expression and i'm saying it's otherworldly listen to what he says he says the clothes became whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them so do you see the point that he's making here this transfiguration was a heavy event it was a heavenly event. He's saying it's whiter than anyone in this world could, could make these clothes. That the, the garment's radiance couldn't be attributed to anything that would happen on this earth. Do you see that? That this is a divine occurrence that you and I are dealing with. Now, Now let's cut to the chase. Let's cut to the bottom line here. Do you see what's happening here? Friends, let me tell you. On this mountainside, a veil was being partially removed. That these three men, Peter, James, and John, that they at this point were seeing almost beyond the human nature of Jesus. What is this light? Well, Calvin says that it is a taste of the boundless glory of the Christ. What is this light? Do you see what the light is? It is a glimpse, a glimpse of the transcendent splendor of Jesus. That's what this light is. Now, I think to apply this this morning, we could do a number of things. We could talk about the magnificence of Jesus. We could talk about Jesus' power. I want to go a different direction. And I want to ask you a question. Isn't this true? that what Peter, James, and John saw on that mountainside that day, it would have been, it must have been absolutely beautiful. Now, do you agree with that? I mean, think about it for a moment. Let's say, against the dusk of that Caesarean sky, they see a divine light emanating from our Lord wouldn't it have been stunning wouldn't it I mean a, a light of righteousness and it's a light of purity never before seen wouldn't it have been spectacular wouldn't it have been breathtaking this before them in the garments of Jesus this beauty of holiness present and emanating from the Christ. And because of that, I want you to consider this wonderful truth. Now, now, listen to me here too. You ready for this? Every person in this room, everyone here just now this morning, we will one day see that light. You will see that glorious radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ because what do we always say we're trying to understand scripture you interpret it in its context and what has Mark just told us about what did I read Mark has told us about the return of the son of man he's just told us that Christ is coming again we are supposed to interpret this light according to that return so do you see the truth? Listen, listen, do you see the truth? That what Peter, James and John saw that day on the hill, you one day are going to see in the sky. Your eyes are going to behold the glory of God in the very face, garments, vestments of Christ Jesus. Now I'm telling you this, I think that should be the greatest boost to our spiritual and our Christian walk. Because what is true of all of humanity what do we spend our time doing? We spend our time pursuing beauty. Don't we? Beauty in other people and beauty in cars and beauty in clothes and on holidays and landscapes. We pursue beauty. But what is true of Christians? Why must we keep on keeping on as the children of God? Why? Why? Because one day our eyes will see the glory of the coming. Of the Lord. We will, you will, we will all see the most beautiful sight ever known to man. Because the king will come. And how shall he come? He will come with trumpets. He will come with power. He will come with splendor. But he will come radiating light. We're going to see this. So we see an alteration to the Son of God. A second aspect that we see in Mark chapter 9 is an appearance by the men of God. An appearance by the men of God. Excuse me. (coughs) Um, I, I think you would agree with me that if the transfiguration account stopped there with the illumination of the Lord Jesus Christ... If it just stopped there, full stop, on the next event, then next to the resurrection of Jesus, this would be one of the most spectacular things you've ever read in your life, wouldn't it? The Son of God there on the mountainside, uh, transfigured. It's absolutely stunning. Here's the, the brutal truth for you, though. Uh, it ain't finished. And if anything, and it's hard to believe, but if anything, the transfiguration account, it just gets better, doesn't it? Because, in verse 4, we're told of the subsequent arrival of another two people. (laughs) And two people who have been long dead. So in addition to this light, we see that, who is it? It is uh, Elijah and Moses appear. Can can I address what I think is probably the most obvious question? Why Elijah and Moses? Hmm? Have you Earth thought about that. Wrestled with that one. Like I, I, I'm, I'm wondering why Abraham wasn't there, aren't you? Like why is it why is it not Abraham and King David? Why is it not Solomon and Isaiah? Or what about this? Why isn't it all of them? No. Like, why does Jesus uh, not radiate light and then suddenly all of the great men and women of Scripture appear on the hillside side with them? Talk- you see what I mean? Why is it Elijah and Moses? Well, the first thing I think about there are the parallels between this event, the transfiguration, and events that happen in the life of Moses and Elijah do you see what i'm talking about the the think about moses now most of you know your bible very very well indeed what happens in moses life hmm think about it what happens in moses that's right at some stage moses too ascends and travels up a high mountainside why for an encounter with the living god and what happens when moses is up the mountainside he radiates with the glory of God as a cloud envelops the mountainside. Do you see? How long is that cloud there for? How long does it take? Hey, six days. See it? And then wait a minute, isn't it the same with Elijah? First Kings chapter 19, what happens? Elijah too, he travels up a mountainside. Why? For an encounter with the living God. So you're with me, aren't you? There are great parallels between the transfiguration and uh, events in Moses' life and in Elijah's life. Do you know what? That's not enough. Not good enough. That is only part of an answer. Um, and I want you to think about this. and I want you to get this, if nothing else. Understand uh, that the people of Israel at the time here They specifically associated those two men, Moses and Elijah, with what? With the end of the age. Now the Jews, I'll say it a different way so that you get it, make sure you get it. The Jews, they specifically connected Moses and Elijah with the coming of the Messiah. Now, if you know your Bibles very well, you're nodding, and you're thinking, I know that. And I know that that is true. Because think about Elijah for a moment. Like, didn't the Jews expect Elijah to appear as the great forerunner of the Christ? Didn't they expect to see Elijah? And what about Moses as well? Well, wait a minute. Wasn't that in Scripture spoken of as the final prophet? The one who would be like Moses, and then what about this? Don't those two prophets, Elijah and Moses, don't they come together in Malachi chapter 4 in reference to the Christ? Let me read this to you. Malachi chapter 4 says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, and behold I will send to you Elijah. When 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 are we going to see them before the great and awesome day of the Lord? So are you seeing the point that I'm making to you? Why wasn't it all of the biblical community? Why wasn't it Abraham? It's because Elijah and Moses were specifically understood in connection with the coming of the Messiah. Now, take the transfiguration... And view the transfiguration in that light. Do you see what's happening in Mark chapter 9? Like what's the scene before us? We've got those two great figures. We've got those two great indicators of the messianic age and what are they doing before you? They are sitting at the feet of Jesus of Nazareth. Now do you see the message of the text? That what had been revealed to Peter previously was true. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was no ordinary man. That he was the one that the people had been waiting for. What is the message of this text? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? He was, and he is, and he always shall be, the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He is the Christ of God. Now, as I look out this morning, I see that there are a number of visitors at London City Presbyterian Church today. And, of course, I have no idea where you stand before Almighty God today. And, and maybe, you know, this section of Scripture and this talk of transcendent light, maybe it, you're new to church, maybe it seems baffling, Uh, To you? Uh, And and so can I just apply this point in I think the most straightforward way possible and I'm just going to ask you a question and it is this. Do you believe in this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you believe in Jesus of Nazareth for the salvation of your soul? Now maybe you can see why I can ask that here in this particular point. Do you? Friends, All of human history has anticipated the appearance of one single man. I think that's a a marvelous thought, isn't it? All of human history, since the very fall, it has been waiting for the appearance of just one individual. Um, One who'd act as a great rescuer of men. And that one man and his appearance, okay, that's what the whole of Moses' ministry was about. (laughs) And the appearance of that one man, that was what everything in the story of Elijah anticipated. In fact, the appearance of this one individual, that is what all of time, all of space revolves around. And so you see, don't you, the message of Mark chapter 9. The message here for you this morning is this. That one individual, that one man has come. That is what God is confronting you with today. That this man, the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that he has shown himself in Mark 9 to be the Messiah. Do you know what? He would go on from this mountainside to the mountain of crucifixion. That there he would bear sin, that he would rise, that he would win salvation for all those who trust in him. This is the guy. This is the man, the saviour that we have all been waiting for. And so you see why that question is so pertinent? Aren't you asking yourself this? If that's true, if this really is the one and only saviour, have I submitted to him? Have I given my life to him? Have I bowed to him? Have I done what he commands me to do and repent and believe in his name have i done that because what is it that we're shown in the transfiguration well who's there elijah's there moses is there what are we shown we are shown that this jesus of nazareth he is the christ the christ of god So we see an alteration to the Son of God. Uh, Then we see an appearance of the men of God. But the third and the last thing that we also are confronted with here is an assurance uh, for the people of God. An assurance for the people of God. Um, I started my sermon uh, saying that everything in Scripture was special. Um, I certainly hinted at the fact that everything in the Bible is meaningful, pertinent, and important. And isn't there an expression in this uh, section of Scripture that doesn't seem to be any of the above? Because Peter, now confronted with Elijah and Moses and the radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ, How would you describe what happens to Peter? Peter almost freaks out a little bit, doesn't he? He does. And he says what seems to be gibberish, doesn't he? Look at verse 5 to see what Peter says. Confronted with this, he says, Teacher, tell you what, Rabbi, uh, let us put up three shelters. Let us erect three tents. What is that? I mean, we know it's not great, we're told that, but what's, is it just total and utter nonsense? Is it? I'm not convinced it's complete gibberish, because think about this, we as a congregation uh, recently studied the book of Zechariah. Remember this? And what do we learn in the 14th chapter of Zechariah? Um, we learn that the festival of booths, where Jews would erect tents and shelters, that that festival was actually associated with the end of the age. That it was actually associated with the end of all things. So maybe that's what's going on here. Okay, Peter's getting it wrong. And Peter's not hes not joining the dots here. And he's not working out things properly. But maybe he's thinking, oh, I better put up a shelter because everything is going to come to an end here. Whether you know whether or not that's what Peter is thinking is probably immaterial. Much more significant is what you are told here about the presence and the voice of Almighty God. So, as we draw things to a conclusion, would you read it with me? Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. What are we told about God? We're told not only that the Lord God appears in a cloud. We are told that Almighty God speaks. What does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Right, I've got two questions for you about that. First of all, does it ring a bell? Is it familiar to you? What does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm hoping it does. It should do. Because we noticed something very, very similar earlier in Mark's gospel at Mark's baptism, didn't we? There, like here, the father speaks and says what he confirms, the love that he has for his son. This is my son whom I love. So that's the first question. Is it familiar? I hope it is. Second question. Second question. What's the difference What's the difference between what the Father said at Jesus' baptism and what the Father says there? Friends, at Jesus' baptism, the Father addressed the Son. He said this, he said, this voice from heaven booms, and it says, you are my Son, whom I What's the difference here? What does he say here? He doesn't say, you are my son at the transfiguration. What does he say? He says, this is my son. So do you see who he's speaking to? The father at this very moment is speaking to Peter, James and John. And if you were on a ball, you maybe have noticed that that is how this whole section of scripture is orientated. Did you notice that? That is all orientated towards the disciples. Verse 3, we're told not just that Jesus is transfigured. What are we actually told? Jesus is transfigured to the disciples. Verse 4, we're not just told that Moses and Elijah appear. What are we told? That Moses and Elijah appear before the disciples. Everything. Everything in the transfiguration, it seems to be for the, for the benefit of Peter, it seems to be orientated towards Peter, James, and John. And therefore, I think this is one of the most supreme lessons that we can learn from this portion of Scripture. Would you listen to this? That this heavenly occurrence that you and I are dealing with today, this marvelous event, that it occurred for the benefit and the assurance of the church of jesus christ this event this glorious event it occurred for the benefit and for the assurance of the church of jesus christ because again consider the context what did we learn last week the disciples they've just been told about the suffering that was to come wasn't that the context isn't that what Morris has told us about that both they and their Lord are going to face ridicule, rejection, death, all for the sake of the glory of God. And you can maybe see what's going on in the disciples' minds. They're thinking, is he worth it? I mean, is he who he says he is, this Jesus and if so, is he worth it? Is all of this stress and ridicule, this suffering that's been spoken about, is all of that really worth it? You see? And into that doubt and into that questioning, what does Almighty God do? He does this. Not only does he miraculously assure those men of Jesus' identity, but he also speaks from heaven He also strengthens their faith for all of that suffering that is to come. Don't you see it? So I need to ask you this this morning. Are you in the same boat today as Peter, James, and John? Are you? I mean, is there a sense that there's a lot of doubt about the Christian walk and a lot of questioning about following Christ today? Or let me put it a different way. Are you tired of following Jesus? Are you doubting that all of these routines of church and devotion are ultimately worth it? Are you doubting whether the rejection you maybe face amongst your your colleagues is worth it? Are you you doubting whether Jesus is actually who he says he is? Is that where you are as a Christian? Well, surely you see in Mark chapter 9 what you must do, what we must always do in a situation like that. We must again look up the mountainside. And we must again gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm saying to you, look again at the light and listen again to the voice of the Father. Is he worth it? Are you kidding me? Is he worth it? Who is this man? He is the unique. He is the beloved. He is the, he is the only son of the living God. You can bet your bottom dollar he's worth it. And then I I, I end with this, what I think is actually one of the most marvelous things about this whole episode. You see the beauty that I was talking about before, the beauty of Jesus, this radiant splendor. You see that beauty? Listen to me. That beauty, not only is what you will one day see with your very eyes, if you're a Christian, that beauty is what you will one day be you see what i'm saying to you just now look at us we are dressed in sin and filth but it's not always going to be like that and such is the extent of the cleansing of the lord jesus christ what is true for you in christ what is it that the apostle paul can declare so boldly he says this our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there. And what shall he do? What does Paul say? That he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. He will transform your lowly body to be like his own body. Don't you Doesn't that take your breath away this morning? Doesn't it? Isn't it marvelous? One day, what is true of you and me in Christ? One day, we're gonna shine! Like one day you and I are going to radiate with the very glory and splendor of a loving sovereign God. We are going to shine and forevermore. In light of that, surely it is the case that all of the praise and all of the honor this morning and all of the worship, that it belongs to one individual. Isn't that right? That one individual that we have all been anticipating, all of the praise, it belongs to Jesus. Let's pray.